Well, Muhammad Ali, the um, <coughs> famous world champion heavyweight boxer, was a passenger on a jet airliner flying somewhere sometime. And uh, during the flight, the, you know, the, the fasten your seatbelt uh, sign came on. And so while, while all the other uh, passengers were busy doing up their seatbelts and tightening them up, Ali didn't do anything. And then the flight attendant, who was working her way along the aisle, just checking, came to Ali and politely pointed out, you know, the, uh, the uh, fasten your seatbelt light was on and asked him to comply. To which Ali said, Superman don't need no seatbelt. To which the flight attendant replied, Superman don't need no plane. <laughs> that sort of arrogance is very foolish, isn't it? An arrogance that leads someone to actually put themselves in danger because they are so confident, overconfident in their own strength, in their own security. A, a sense of invincibility that, that leads someone to do stupid things, risky things, dangerous things. It's very foolish. Tonight we're thinking about arrogance, a more dangerous type of arrogance than, than that of Muhammad Ali. Tonight we're thinking about spiritual arrogance, an arrogance that leads Christians to think of themselves as spiritually invincible, an arrogance that leads Christians into putting themselves in great spiritual danger, doing incredibly spiritually risky things because they are so confident that they can handle it. It's a spiritual arrogance that can have disastrous consequences. And let me warn you, we suffer from it. And so did the Corinthians that Paul was writing to. I reckon you've got to admire the uh, flight attendant's response to, to Muhammad Ali, don't you reckon? She saw through his arrogance and exposed it for just how foolish it really was. And the Apostle Paul, in our passage tonight, does a similar thing. He exposes the folly and the arrogance of the Corinthian Christians. And of course, at the same time, he exposes how stupid our own spiritual arrogance is. Tonight's word from God is a warning, a warning to all spiritual supermen and superwomen. It's a call to put your seatbelts on. It'd be great to have your Bible open at 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Um, the outline may fill you with a sense of uh, dread or confidence. It's fairly uh, crowded but I'm hoping that it'll be uh, helpful for you. The Apostle Paul actually does a bit of jumping around the Bible and we're going to do a little bit of jumping across the passage and refer to some other passages. So keep your eye on the outline. I hope that it'll be all be quite clear. But let's pray and ask for, our, ask for God's help to, to hear his warning and to heed it with great seriousness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you love us enough to give us even the most somber and serious of warnings. And Father, we pray that you would help us to hear you, to believe you, and to trust you tonight. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, point one on your outline and verse one of chapter 10. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. Two words I want us to notice uh, in that verse as important. The first word is the first word, for. Unfortunately, not all of our translations have it, but Paul wrote it there. 
4, I do not want you to be ignorant. That's an important word to notice because it links chapter 10, our passage, with what's just been written, what we looked at last week in chapter 9. Remember, Paul's just been calling on his readers to run well in the Christian life, to run in such a way, he said, as to get the prize, the crown that lasts forever. And in fact, the very last thing he wrote in verse 27 of chapter 9, verse 27, the last thing he wrote was how hard he works at not being disqualified for the prize. And you see, it's that possibility of missing out on the prize. It's that possibility that leads on to what he says next. But that is precisely the danger the Corinthians were in. They were not running well. And so in verse 1, he says, For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers. Second word I want us to notice as important is ignorant. For that actually taps into a big theme um, that flows through these chapters 8, 9 and 10. It's the theme of knowledge. You might remember that our passage here in chapter 10 is actually part 3, part 3 of Paul's answer to the Corinthian question about eating food sacrificed to idols. His answer, remember, began way back in chapter 8 and verse 1, two Sundays ago. And if you were here two weeks ago, you'll remember that Paul began his answer with the warning that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. The Corinthians, you see, or at least some of them, had great pride in their knowledge, in their spiritual knowledge. And it was their knowledge that idols are nothing and that there is no God but one. It was their knowledge of that that led them into pressuring others within their fellowship, those that they regarded as weak, to pressure them to eat along with them the food sacrificed to idols. And so in response, remember, Paul firstly took them to task over their lack of love. Love builds up, whereas they were in danger of using their knowledge to destroy their vulnerable brothers and sisters. Just because you know something is never enough unless you act on what you know in love. And so Paul's verdict, remember, at the end of chapter 8 was that if eating meat caused his brother to stumble, he'd never eat meat again. And then he took the principle even further last week in chapter 9, didn't he? To not eat food so as to help a brother grow as a Christian was just one example in a life dedicated to being a slave to everyone so as to win as many as possible. A life where Paul said last week, remember, that he had become all things to all men so that by all possible means he might save some. And so he's telling the Corinthians, look, your knowledge needs to be shaped by love. But now in our passage, chapter 10, Paul returns to the second half of that um, saying. He returns to the idea that knowledge puffs up to that warning. Because, you see, their knowledge had led them into a very dangerous arrogance. Their their knowledge that idols were nothing had actually led them into becoming involved in idolatry. That's going to become clear as we work our way through the passage. And so Paul begins this part of his answer by saying, look, I don't want you to be ignorant, which is a great way of getting the attention of people who boast in their knowledge, don't you think? Look, guys, I don't want you to be dumb on this. So what doesn't Paul want them to be ignorant about? The danger they are in. And to help them, Paul reminds them of some lessons from the past. Point two on your outline. Let me read again from verse 1, chapter 10. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. 
They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied, accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. It's fun sometimes, don't you reckon, pulling out the old photo albums at home and you sort of flick back through the, the snapshots and you f find lots of good memories, warm sort of memories, that sort of stuff. Of course, grabbing the old albums is not always pleasant, is it? Um, in our family, whenever we look at the old photos, inevitably my kids always laugh at how big my glasses are. They're laughing now. <laughs> they always laugh at how big my glasses were. And look, I've got to admit, looking at the photos, those giant frames were a bit of a mistake. <laughs> at the time, I thought everything was fine. They were pretty cool. Thank you. Thank you, Heather. But now, I've got to tell you now, every time I get a new pair of glasses, the frames keep getting smaller. Because I don't want to make that mistake again. In those opening verses of chapter 10, Paul is really showing the Corinthians some snapshots from the Family of God album. And in particular, he turns to the bit of the album that covers the time between when the Israelites left Egypt and before they reached the Promised Land. And the first snapshot in the family album he points them to there in verse 1, in verse 1, is the one of the time when the Israelites were guided by the Lord by the pillar of cloud to the edge of the Red Sea. That time when Moses stretched out his hand and the Lord drove the sea back with a strong wind and turned the sea into dry land so that the Israelites could walk across and leave Egypt and, and escape Pharaoh. You can read about it for yourself in Exodus chapter 14. It's the Exodus, an incredible event in the history of God's people. And thinking of that time, if you like, looking at that photo, Paul in verse 2, he describes the Israelites in verse 2 as having been baptised into Moses and in the cloud in the sea. It's a strange phrase, baptised. It doesn't mean they got wet. The whole point was they stayed dry, okay? But by baptism, Paul means that they belonged to Moses. Their identity was caught up with him through that incredible experience. And then the next two snapshots capture the privilege enjoyed by the Israelites belonging to Moses. There in verse 3, we look at the photo. It's the time when they ate the same spiritual food. God provided bread for them from heaven, manna for them to eat. And every morning it was ready for them. Exodus chapter 16, you could read about that. And then there was even that time, next sort of photo, where the Lord provided water from a rock. Moses struck the rock and the water flowed out of it for the people to drink. Exodus chapter 17, you could read about that. You see, you look at these photos and you think, man, those Israelites were privileged. In, in fact, Paul even highlights their privileged position by even identifying the rock as Christ himself. If anyone had grounds for spiritual confidence, you reckon those Israelites did? The cloud of the Lord guiding them, the experience of the parting of the Red Sea, the bread all around them, Moses as their leader, the water from the rock. Those guys had every reason to think that they were spiritually safe. If anyone could have presumed that they were in with God, it was them, surely. But then, of course, Paul turns the page on the family album. And the next scene is a very, very disturbing one indeed. Verse 5. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. See, confidence is a healthy thing. Overconfidence is very dangerous. 
As soon as you say someone is overconfident, what you really mean is that their level of confidence doesn't fit with reality, doesn't fit with the situation. They're not as strong, not as skilled, not as secure as they reckon they are. And that's dangerous. And you see, for the Corinthians, the strong among them were very confident. They figured that they were so in with God that they were safe from anything. They were spiritually invincible. And so Paul points them to the picture of those Israelites who came out of Egypt so privileged, and yet they never made it to the promised land. They perished under judgment. They never received the prize. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. Verse 6, verse 6. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Lessons from the past, you see. Negative lessons. Examples of failure. Examples of what happens when you set your hearts on evil things. You see, the apostle is passing on the most serious of warnings to the Corinthians in these verses. He is passing on a warning of judgment, a warning that should have shattered their arrogance. And then as he continues, his warning becomes more and more direct, more and more pointed. He still has the family album open, if you like, and this time he selects examples and lessons that especially should have caused the Corinthians to sit up and take notice. Verse 7, do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. Paul there is looking at the photo referring to the incident of the golden calf. You can read about it in Exodus chapter 32. The Israelites had escaped Egypt and had reached Mount Sinai and Moses had gone up the mountain to meet with the Lord. But because Moses had been gone for a long while, Israelites took their gold and cast it into the shape of a calf in order to worship it instead of the Lord. And then what Paul quotes there from Exodus 32 took place. They ate and they drank and indulged in pagan revelry. That should have been a very pointed example to the Corinthians because they too, you see, were straying into idolatry. It's no accident that the Apostle chooses to quote the particular verse from Exodus 32 that refers to eating and drinking in the idolatry. For that is precisely what he is challenging the Corinthians on. Not just eating food sacrificed to idols, but participating in the very act of idolatry itself. And we can see that over in verse 18. My plan is to sort of work through the verses up to verse 14. We're going to jump across to the second half of the passage every now and again. That's why the outline's important. Come across to verse 18 with me. He says, Consider the people of Israel. Did not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Do I mean then that a sacrifice offered to an idol is anything or that an idol is anything? No, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. You see, from Paul's words there, it seems clear that the Corinthians were not merely eating food that had earlier somewhere, someplace been sacrificed to idols. They were actually eating of the actual ceremony itself. They are participants, Paul says. And it would seem that what is driving them is their knowledge that idols are nothing and that sacrifices to idols are nothing. Knowledge, notice that Paul is pleased to affirm there in verse 19. He agrees with them, just like he did back in chapter 8. 
But what they fail to understand is that although an idol is nothing, just a, just a chunk of wood, behind all idolatry is actually the forces of evil. Behind any worship of anything other than God are the demons. By worshipping something that is not the living God, they are in fact offering sacrifices to demons who stand behind, you, if you like, the chunk of wood that is nothing. And Paul says they are actually participating with demons. See, participating in idolatry and idol feasts and ceremonies is not neutral. It is dangerous. It has consequences. And so back in verse 7, Paul points the Corinthians back to the Israelites to see that. And he goes on to spell out the consequences. So back to verse 8. Let me read verse 8. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. In Corinth, there were many temples to many gods. And in many of them, if not most of them, sexual immorality was an integral part of worship. There was even uh, prostitutes in the shrines, that sort of thing. Um, an example is that Aphrodite in Corinth was the god of sailors and sacred prostitution in the city. And so you see, it's more than likely that as part of their participation in idolatry, the Corinthians were caught up in immorality as well. And that fits, doesn't it, with what we've already seen back in chapter 6, if you've got a good memory from last year, that there was indeed a problem of sexual immorality going on unchecked within the church. Paul's already tackled that one. And so here in verse 8, Paul refers them now back to Numbers chapter 25 and a terrible example of the consequences of disobedience. 23,000 men died dead in one day under the Lord's judgment. 23,000 disqualified for the prize because of idolatry and immorality. But there were others too, Paul says. In verse 9, here he uh, points to the, the photo in the album, if you like. He refers to the incident of those who put the Lord to the test in Numbers chapter 21 when they complained about the Lord's care of them. They were puffed up with their own importance and many Israelites were killed that day, failing to get the prize. And of course, the Corinthians too were testing the Lord. Later in verse 22, the apostle warns them of exactly that. Listen to the biting sarcasm of his question by the time he gets to verse 22. Verse 22, are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? You see, the Apostle sees the Corinthians as just like the Israelites in the desert way back when, testing the Lord, pushing the boundary in their spiritual arrogance. It's all right. We can handle it. We know what we're doing. And then, of course, Paul says there were those who grumbled, grumbled against the Lord and specifically against Moses, the Lord's appointed leader. Verse 10, and do not grumble, he says, as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. See, the grumblers among Israelites too, they were, they were disqualified for the prize. Numbers 16, you might want to have a look at. You've got a lot of reading to do this week, don't you? Numbers 16. And they too had their bodies scattered in the desert. Were the Corinthians grumblers? Yes. It's one of the first things we, we learn about them in the letter. And especially they grumble against Paul, Christ's apostle. 
in their spiritual arrogance, they believed that they knew better than than the Apostle Paul. They looked down on the ordinariness of the Apostles' message and ministry. They were grumbling, just like the Israelites way back when. You see, in their idolatry and the immorality and their testing and their grumbling, they had much to learn about what happened to the Israelites back then. Verse 11, these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. Brothers and sisters, it is a mistake to read the Old Testament as nothing more, nothing more than interesting historical events. It's a mistake to think that we can read the accounts of the people of Israel as merely spectators. The very reason that they happened, the very reason that God caused them to be written and preserved in our Bible is for our good, is so that we might learn from them. Those great and terrible examples of failure and disobedience and disqualification, they come to us as examples and warnings. Because on us, Paul says, the fulfilment of the ages has come. That's a great phrase, I reckon. The fulfilment of the ages has come. What Paul's referring to, of course, is that the, the entire story of the Old Testament is the story of God's unfolding plan of salvation. God's plan to bring all things together under Christ the Lord. It's the story of promise and fulfilment. And with the coming of Jesus and his death and his resurrection, the yes to all of God's promises has been revealed. The entire Old Testament, you see, points forward and anticipates the coming of Jesus and his gathering of us as his people. Because, you see, now is the age of fulfilment. Now is the end time. Now is the day of salvation. And we, even us here, have been graciously included in it through Christ. Paul says, on us, the fulfilment of the ages has come. And so you see, we now view the Old Testament from an incredibly privileged vantage point. We are in an an incredibly privileged position. And so are the Corinthians, for we both live this side of Jesus' death and resurrection, you see. And that's why the warnings of the Old Testament accounts of failure and disobedience and disqualification, that's why they're so potent, so pointed, so vital. And that's why Paul takes those lessons of the past and delivers a very serious warning for the present. Verse 12. Verse 12. So... If you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. So, if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. It's a serious warning to spiritually arrogant people, to people who think they are standing firm, to people who think they are somehow spiritually invincible, to people confident, overconfident, in their spiritual security, to people puffed up with their spiritual knowledge. Be careful that just like those Israelites, you don't fall. Be careful that just like them, you are not disqualified for the prize. Be careful that you do not miss out on the crown that lasts forever. 
For the Corinthians, their spiritual arrogance had led them into idolatry, into sexual immorality, into testing the Lord, and into grumbling against him and his appointed leader. And they were in great peril, and they needed to know it. They needed to be warned. And so do we. So do we. For you see, we are not immune from the arrogance that the Corinthians suffered from, are we? Only a fool would think so. Well, I reckon when you read of the idolatry of the Israelites, and we're amazed at their hard hearts. I mean, imagine having been rescued so spectacularly from slavery in Egypt and then surrendering to idolatry like that. Imagine that. Imagine those Corinthians thinking it was okay to participate in the idolatry of the pagan temples. There's no way we'd fall for that. And yet here we are tonight, rescued not from Egypt, but from hell. And what we see is not just a sea turned into a dry bed, we see a wooden cross and an empty tomb. We have been rescued not by the parting of the Red Sea, but by the death and resurrection of the Son of God. And here we are rescued, saved, and yet how easily our hearts wander. How easily we set our hearts on evil things. Every single one of us in this room has felt the tug of wanting more money, more possessions, more financial security. And most, if not all of us, have surrendered to it. Haven't we? If we examined our day-to-day lives honestly, wouldn't it be true that much of our energy and zeal is directed towards either getting more money or spending our money in order to make our life better? In the Bible, greed is identified as idolatry. Colossians 3 verse 5 is just one example. Greed is idolatry. Loving and serving money with the devotion that only the Lord deserves. And many of us here tonight, friends, are worshippers. Why? Because we are arrogant enough to imagine that money can't corrupt our relationship with God. We're stronger than that. I'm free in Christ and my freedom allows me to enjoy my money without fear or caution. It's just not a serious problem for me. And even though, you know, Jesus repeatedly warns his followers about the deceitfulness of wealth and the impossibility of serving both God and money, we're in no danger, we like to think. Brothers and sisters, if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Be careful that greed doesn't disqualify you from the prize. We're so skilled at rationalising our own sin, aren't we? So skilled at excusing ourselves, granting ourselves exemptions. The love of money, Paul says in another place, is the root of all kinds of evil. So wake up and put your seatbelt on, for you are in great peril. And when it comes to immorality, things are, are not much better, are they? There's no harm in watching this. There are some dodgy bits, but it doesn't really affect me like it might affect others. Yeah, maybe I am a bit flirty, but it's not as if I'm gonna, it's going to lead anywhere. It's just a bit of harmless fun. We are oh so confident about, about our ability 
to resist temptation. Overconfident. Arrogant. And so we think that that lingering look, it's harmless. No harm done there. Or we tell ourselves the fantasies that we indulge in, they're safe. Or we kid ourselves that those romantic novels with their descriptions of desires and sexual encounters, it's okay, I know it's not really true. Or we watch those music videos and we think that it's okay. It's not as if I'm a teenager. Or we feel so safe watching those late night TV shows feeling like we're immune. I can handle it. It's no big deal. For couples who are going out together, when it comes to physical touch and, you know, what's appropriate and inappropriate, so, so often it comes down to setting a boundary. You know, we're only going to go this far in how much we touch one another. But then, of course, what we do is we move as close as we can to that boundary as possible. Because, I mean, it's not as if we're going to end up having sex. We know that's wrong and unhelpful. We're stronger than that. Like teenage boys with their new pea plates, we often feel spiritually invincible. We can't imagine that we could ever stumble so badly so as to be disqualified for the prize. And so we grow careless in our obedience. We lack caution. We lack vigilance. We make foolish choices, disobedient choices. We ignore the warnings of Scripture and we tell ourselves everything's okay. We can handle it. And through his apostle, you see, the Lord confronts each and every one of us tonight and says this, if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Consider the Israelites, the bodies scattered throughout the desert. They never reached the promised land. Heed the warning. Recognize the danger. And respond rightly. And that's where the apostle turns next. Point three on your outline. Verse 13. Verse 13. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. In a passage of grim and grisly warnings, that's a wonderful relief, that verse, isn't it? The faithfulness of God. And isn't it typical of what we always find in the Bible, that even though human responsibility and accountability is constantly stressed, it's never stressed at the expense of God's gracious and sovereign faithfulness. It's never in the end, you see, down to us, which is a great truth. It's a wonderful truth, don't you reckon? And Paul wants the Corinthians to understand that as dark as their situation may be, there is still a way out. The temptation they experience is real and he expects them to experience it. He would expect us to experience the temptation. The temptation itself is not wrong. In fact, it's common to all people. But temptation need not, it need not be a one-way street to surrender and sin because God is faithful. He's not the tempter, but he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. And along with the temptation, he will provide the way out. For he is good. 
And he promises to keep us strong to the end. He promises to make us blameless on the day of Christ. In fact, he even uses the testing of our temptation to make us stronger, to grow us. It's a great comfort. Especially since we want to run in such a way as to claim the prize, don't we? We're not running alone. That's what Paul says. We're not running alone. God himself is at work in us by his word and his spirit. And if we doubt his commitment to us, we only need to pause for a moment to consider the willing death of Jesus for us to make us his own. God has already given us of his very best. It's not as if he's going to hold back anything from us now. But friends, we've got to be humble enough to recognize our need and humble enough to accept his help. In other words, we've got to let go of our arrogance. We've got to put aside the charade that we are spiritually invincible or even spiritually pretty good. We need to come to our Father in humility and dependence because he is good and he is faithful. So are you battling with greed? Well, Why don't you admit that and then come to your Father for help? God will provide a way out. Are you battling with immorality? Well, why don't you give up the pretense that it's not all that bad? Give up the pretense that you can handle it and admit the reality and draw near to your Father with a humble and contrite heart. God is faithful. He'll not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. So look to Him and run. Verse 14. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I reckon it's great that after urging the Corinthians to run well back in chapter 9, here in verse 14, it seems the way to run well is to run. It's to flee. To flee sin. To flee idolatry. Just make sure your brains are still on. It's been going for a while, but here we go. In the same way that human responsibility and obedience is never taught at the expense of God's sovereign faithfulness, I said that a moment ago, it's also true that in the Bible, God's sovereign faithfulness never ever extinguishes the importance of our choices and our responsibilities. Knowing the faithfulness of God, knowing his promise to keep us strong to the end, the only right response is to run from our sin, is to run from our sin, to make that decision, to make that plan, to run from our sin. We've got to act sensibly, We are to put aside the arrogant nonsense that leads us to take risks as Christians. We've got to stop dancing with sin as if it's of no danger to us. And we've got to flee. If we are in danger of immorality, we are to act decisively and extremely. Like like Joseph with Potiphar's wife back in the book of Genesis. We are to run. Jesus taught that if your eye causes you to sin, you're better off cutting it out and entering heaven with one eye than entering hell with two. Flee. End the relationship. Disconnect the internet. Do whatever you need to do. Act extremely and decisively. Flee. Run. And if you think you love money too much, give a bunch of it away. If you fear that maybe you love possessions too much, give them away. Be hard on yourself about what you buy. 
Sometimes we, we treat ourselves as if we're consumer victims. It just sort of happened. I got home and I bought all this stuff. That is just a nonsense. Why don't you cut up the credit card, see how you go. Be hard on yourself. Act decisively and extremely. Flee. Run. For brothers and sisters, there is a crown. There is a prize that lasts forever. And there is a way to run in order to get that prize. And it is not the way of spiritual arrogance. It is not to be puffed up with our own knowledge and our own ability to get there with ourselves at the centre. No, no, the way to run is to have God at the centre and our brothers and sisters and not me. That's the right way. That's the way of humility and love. That is the truth that has shaped the Apostle's writing through these whole three chapters. He has been urging the Corinthians, have God at the centre and your brothers and sisters and not you, not me. That was his way. But more importantly for the Apostle Paul, it was the way of Christ. And so it should be our way too. We've seen it all the way through these chapters and we can see it in the way Paul concludes and sums up all these written in chapters 8, 9 and 10. And so let's, let's us conclude that way too. Have a look with me. Verse 31 of chapter 10. See if you think this is a good summary of our last three weeks. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks or the church of God, even as I try to please everybody in every way. For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Follow my example, as I follow the example of Christ. Let's pray. I'm going to give you some moments to approach the God who is faithful and who loves you and deals with you patiently and graciously and I want to give you the chance to come before him perhaps confess that thing that you've been arrogant about you talk to God and in a few moments I'll pray.